Pound the Rock is brought to you by the Score Bet. That's right, we brought you the best sports media app. Now we're bringing you the best sports book and casino. Now live in Ontario, the Score Bet offers a safe and secure mobile sportsbook experience with both pregame and in-play markets. But best of all, it's integrated into the Score and our content to give you the easiest and most seamless sports betting experience. Download now on iOS and Android. Available in Ontario only. Must be 19 years of age or older to participate. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call Connects Ontario at 1-866-531-2600. Holy cannoli and welcome to Pound the Rock, the score's NBA podcast. My name is Joseph Cachao, not Clay Thompson, despite the holy cannoli intro. And I'm joined, as always, by co-host Joe Wolfong. What's up, Cash? I, I thought you were going to hit me with the uh, the Clemenza. <laughs> Leave the trophy. Take, Take the cannoli. The cannoli. <laughs> you are wearing a Godfather shirt in honor of the occasion, so I figured oh, yeah. that was wise. Yes. Although I guess in this case, it would be Leave the cannoli, take the trophy. Because uh, <laughs> the Warriors have claimed yet another Larry O'Brien trophy. They're fourth in eight years after making the finals for the sixth time in eight years. The Celtics are done in six games after a, I don't want to say miraculous run, but pretty surprising run. They, yes, they were the best team in the league for the second half of the season. But if someone, if someone had told me coming into the year, the Celtics were going to march to the finals, having gone through Milwaukee and Miami, and sweet Brooklyn, obviously it would not the Brooklyn team we thought it would be, but still, yeah. it, it was a su- surprising run. From that, being 500 after 50 games. I mean, dude, that's, they were under 500 as recently as I think January 21st or 24th. Like, it's one of the more remarkable in season turnarounds that we've seen. Right. And I think that entire team deserves a ton of credit for figuring it out. And, you know, between their airtight defense and, and, you know, an offense that frankly was really, really good down the stretch. And obviously we saw some of the limitations with that at various points in the playoffs and especially in the finals, but they figured it out. You know, they, they were able to scratch out enough points to get to within two wins of the title yeah. on the back of that incredible defense. And I think it ended in pretty ugly fashion for some of their key players, you know, Jason Tatum chief among them. But I hope that that doesn't, leave too sour a taste in people's mouths or wash away what this team actually accomplished along the way. Because, you know, despite the fact that Milwaukee was losing a really key player in that series, and despite the fact that, you know, Brooklyn was a mishmash of a team, like a more of an idea of a team than an actual (laughs) team that had traded you know, one of its three best players for a player who wound up not playing for them. And despite the fact that Miami was badly hobbled, like it, it was still a really difficult road for them to get to where they got to. There are no easy paths to the finals and they deserved every bit of that, that finals appearance. And, you know, I, I'm curious to see where it goes from here for that team, because you make this point all the time, right? You never know when, you've gotten your last best chance in this league. And even a young team like Boston, where it seems like they're going to keep ascending from here, you just never know. And they're going to come back next year and 
Brooklyn's going to have an offseason to figure their shit out. And Milwaukee was going to be back and healthy. And, you know, maybe we'll see a rejuvenated James Harden in Philadelphia or an upstart team like Toronto take the next step or any number of things that could happen that, that change the landscape of the league. And, uh, you know, you can't take these opportunities for granted. So I, I understand it being disappointed because I, I do think they had a chance to win this thing. I don't think there was like some great golf separating these teams. I think Boston shot itself in the foot many, many times in this series. I mean, they turned the ball over 22 times in game which was, six. Which was one of their Achilles heels all season. Yes. So I don't want to downplay the whatever feeling of disappointment there is among the Celtics fan base or or any team that was hoping to see them put their best foot forward in the finals. I don't think they did that, despite the fact that I think their defense was really good, you know, basically from start to finish in this series. I think they could have played better, but I, I still think getting to where they got to was an amazing accomplishment, a, a really important step for a lot of players on this team, for Ime Udoka in his first season as a head coach. And... I wouldn't be surprised at all to see them back here at some point in the near future. But like we always say, that's that's far from a guarantee. A lot will have to go right for this to happen again. And, you know, next season they're they're back at the bottom of the mountain and yep. having to stare up and climb it again. And that's going to be a really difficult thing for them to swallow after coming so close. I'm always good with obviously a team as good and still as young as Boston, you know, looking at it as like, we'll be in the mix again next year. You know, like, we'll we'll be in the mix for a while. That I, I completely agree with and I understand. As to your point about what I usually say, yeah, it's that teams or fans or whatever, pundits that assume a team will be right back here is where I'm like, man, like, have you not watched, not just pro sports, but the NBA specifically over the last X amount of years to, to not know that nothing is guaranteed? And because I think it was Draymond. Or, one of the Warriors said something to the Celtics, like, ah, we'll see you here again. Or, like, you guys will be here again. And uh, someone pointed out on Twitter, like, do you remember the 2011 or 2012 Thunder that had Kevin Durant and, and James Harden and Russell Westbrook and took game one from Miami in that finals? And, yeah, when they lost in five, that was kind of the, the overarching sentiment. Like, ah, this sucks, but they'll be back. Like, how could they not? And guess what? They never went back. Like, so... Um, Boston will definitely be in the mix, I think, for the next few years. But no guarantees they get right back here because, as you said, it's uh, it's a long climb up that mountain even just to get to the finals, let alone to win a championship. I do think, though, just based on how much this team overcame this season to get to this point, to get to within two wins, I thought it was absolutely Bush League that their fans booed them in the first – look, I – I was saying, I don't care if you get 40-pieced in that game. This was not like powerhouse team that should have, you know, that was favored to win a championship of shitting the bed in the playoffs and coming up short at home. In the Like, this team, for a lot of reasons, probably shouldn't even have been there. And they went on this crazy run to get there. They've been resilient all playoffs. Okay, they were getting their ass kicked in the first half, but I don't know, man. There are times I support fans booing their team when it's warranted. I do not think game six of the NBA Finals, when your team was a pretty inspiring team just to get here, is one of those occasions. But anyway, I guess that's not really important. As far as you were mentioning, it was a great year. just didn't necessarily end that way for some of their players. I just wanted to follow up because on the last pod I had mentioned you know Tatum struggles in crunch time all year and I was having I was having trouble trying to find the numbers at that point so I ended up looking after we finished recording just to confirm that I wasn't losing my mind and then yeah so I his his clutch numbers for the whole year regular season and playoffs combined he ended up playing 172 clutch minutes he scored 101 points 
but on 31 of 86 shooting. And during that time, he had 14 turnovers versus nine assists. So just to kind of wrap up what we were talking about last uh, last episode, where obviously he had a great season and just took another step towards full-blown superstar in this year, but there, whether it is fatigue or the, whatever it is, for late in games, he just was not the same player. And just in the fourth quarter alone in, in the finals, he ended up 6 of 25. 18 points on 31 possessions. So just ugly numbers all around. Now, he he, he was nine assists to four turnovers in the fourth quarter in the finals. And that is one thing that I do think we saw grow uh, was that playmaking this year. And especially in the finals when his scoring and wasn't there, he was making plays for others and using the attention he was drawing to make plays for others. So not a completely lost cause, but definitely, you know, if we do talk about him taking whatever that final step towards like full blown absolute tier one superstar level is, I do think sustaining his excellence, you know, throughout a game and definitely down the stretch of close games is going to have to improve. Yeah. Sort of like a microcosm for the whole playoff run, right? Like he can have Mm -hmm. a great game, help his team get to clutch time in the first place by carrying them at the offensive end while providing them excellent defense and might just run out of gas at the very end of the game. You know, kind of just like what happened in this playoff run where, I mean, he he carried them offensively for yeah. extended stretches in this postseason and got them within two wins of the finals, you know, of, of the championship, uh, but ran out of gas at the end. And just, it just seemed like he had nothing left by the end of that game six. And I mean, I I kind of think that's, understandable given the offensive load that he was carrying like I've said many times I just I don't think this is a particularly dynamic Celtics offense Uh, I think they found ways to work around that at points this season and you know I think that's that's a credit to them I mean you could argue maybe that they could have had a little bit more ingenuity in their offense and not been so ISO dependent, but I think you also have to give a ton of credit to the defenses they played throughout the postseason. You know, aside from Brooklyn, obviously, who they shredded for like 120 points per 100 possessions in the first round. After that, they're going through Milwaukee, Miami, Golden State. I mean, those are tough, tough defenses that can play a lot of different styles and lock you down in numerous ways. And I, I think it would be a disservice to those defenses to just pin this all on Boston's offense and say, well, they weren't running anything and they just kicked the ball around. Like some of it was self-inflicted, but a lot of it came down to the defenses they were playing. Yeah, completely agreed. The last Tatum note I wanted to make was just that, um, because I know the last episode you were talking about his two point issues in this series, which were evident. Like the guy couldn't score inside the arc, but was actually shooting well from beyond the arc. It's funny because that's actually the inverse of, his struggles otherwise in the season. And especially when I talk about clutch time, like those numbers I gave you for clutch time between the regular season and playoffs, he was actually 31 of 60 on two pointers. So above 50% on two, he was two of 26 from deep in clutch minutes through the regular season and playoffs. So it's then interesting that in the finals, the three point shot was actually pretty consistent and he just could not create anything inside the arc, Mm. which there are a lot of reasons that was the case, but one of which was 
obviously the team defense the Warriors played, but also the individual defense. Andrew Wiggins played on him. Like you saw it again in game six, the individual defense at times, and especially in those fourth quarters by Andrew Wiggins on Jason Tatum was honestly shocking. Not because I didn't think Andrew Wiggins was capable of, like, he's been an improved defender the last couple of years. He's been getting better. He was really good this year for most of the year on the second best defense in the league. But I don't know how many people other than the biggest Wiggins supporters or believers came into this playoffs or even this finals thinking he would could be that kind of just straight up one-on-one shutdown defender against an offensive star like Tatum. But he was. I think he's shown, certainly over the course of this year, but really the last two years, that he is that type of defender. I mean, I actually think that the areas he showed the most improvement in defensively this year were as a team defender. Like, he's been excellent as a one-on-one wing stopper for the last two seasons to me. So I'm not necessarily surprised by that. I, I think I was more surprised by a lot of the other stuff that he was able to do. Like, the the isolation scoring that kind of rescued the Warriors in Game 5. And just the consistency with he was able to extend advantages, right? Like there was no hesitation when he was, you know, getting those catch and shoot opportunities. He was either letting it fly or he was making a quick decision, attacking off the catch or moving the ball. He operated so seamlessly, I thought, within the flow of the Warriors offense. And when the flow got bogged down because of what Boston's defense or any other team's defense was doing to them, and somebody had to go and create a bucket out of nothing, a lot of time he was up for that challenge as well. And I think... It's like I said on the last episode, I, I wrote a column about it too. Just I felt like he had managed to merge those sort of self-creating instincts that he developed early in his career, which, you know, frankly, he'd never actually been good at doing. But in moments where the Warriors needed that from him, like even though he wasn't doing it particularly efficiently, he was doing it efficiently enough to just give them the little boost they needed to get their offense out of mud. And, you know, apart from that, he was just everything was coming in the flow and I can think back to when they first traded for him, when that was like my biggest concern about how he was going to fit there. Him interrupting the flow that, you know, the optimized version of that team was going to want to play with. Because at the time, you know, they they traded for him and Steph was out, Draymond was out. It was a 15-win season. Like, there were no stakes. But I was thinking about it at the time and thinking like, okay, when this team is like like healthy and fully optimized again, like how is Wiggins going to fit within this structure? And it was it was a huge question mark to me, like whether he was going to be able to adapt to fit what they wanted to do. And I felt like he gave them everything that they needed from him. You know, he was like Harrison Barnes 2.0, you know, Harrison Barnes with like better shooting and better defense, basically. Uh, And that was it was just a puzzle piece that wound up fitting perfectly. And, you know, they, they don't win this championship without him. So I agree. Huge kudos to Wiggins, not just his defense on Tatum in this round, but like on Luca yep. in the conference finals, like he, he was there for them when they needed him pretty much every time. Quick fun question for you that I'm sure you'll hate. <laughs> given, given, <laughs> given how uh, perturbed you and a lot of people, not just you were at the Wigan, not even just all-star selection, which I think you would have been perturbed anyway, but all-star starting nod. Um, but given that, but also given what you saw from him over the rest of the season in the playoffs and in the finals in particular, and the age he still is and all that, the situation he's in. If I asked you over under 0.5 all-star appearances for Andrew Wiggins' rest of his career, what would you say? 
Well, I would have to say over because he made it in as a starter this year. So like, why, you know, why wouldn't that happen again in the future? I also think, you know, if he has a similar season to the one that he had this season and it comes down to picking the reserves and it's like a similarly diminished field because of injuries or underperformance or whatever, I can totally see the coaches rewarding him for what they saw him do this postseason. I think that that is often how this stuff can work. Like there are reputational picks and it's crazy to think of Andrew Wiggins being like a reputational all-star pick, but totally see that happening in the future because of, because of what he proved to be capable of on the biggest stage. So I would say over, I'm not necessarily saying I would pick him for, you know, over 0.5 all-star selections in the future, but I also do think I should eat a little bit of crow because I came down hard on that all-star selection, even though I kind of said at the time, like I, I wasn't actually super bothered by it. It just, I just felt there were other guys who were more deserving and I still feel that way, but you know, I, he, he was fantastic. There, there's nothing else to say. Like he was terrific. And I don't think we're going to look back now on that all-star selection and think it was so egregious considering that he was, you know, what the third best third most important player on this team like in the finals at least maybe not if you take this season as a whole but like yeah. i think in I mean, the finals he was at worst their third most i was gonna say player. i think you can make the argument he was their second in in the final I, I i'm assuming you've got draymond as the other one yeah it's tough because yeah. at various points it was different players i feel like right. it was definitely draymond at a lot like of game, points yeah still the linchpin of their defense i mean in yeah. game six he was easily their second best player there are what maybe a handful of players in the history of basketball that could have the impact Draymond Green had on that title clinching game while scoring 12 points on 15 individual like he was inefficient individually offensively and just had his fingerprints all over the damn game on both ends of the court but like his playmaking on offense was almost peak Draymond in that game and it's uh it was in the paint the pace that he injected them with yes, where that. he's pushing off of every Celtics miss. Like obviously they were pushing off of the turnovers, but yeah. like off of their missed layups, I mean, Draymond was getting them out and running time after time. And that, I mean, like I've said throughout this entire series, you know, the Warriors really struggled to score in the half court, but when they were able to get out in the open floor, they were super effective. And, and Draymond was a huge part of that in game six. I just think it's so interesting to watch this Warriors team you know, win this fourth one seven years after the first one, four years removed from the last one because, okay, the core trio obviously is there with, with Steph and Clay and Draymond, but Clay, we know the story of missing two and a half years. And as I talked about earlier this year, really, went, in terms of a player of that stature missing that much time, the only precedent of it in NBA history had been Jordan and Magic Johnson coming out of retirements to play again. Um, Draymond, who while still obviously a fantastic defensive player, like his offensive limitations were like magnified and then some this year. Like he he's even more limited as an offensive player now than he was at the Warriors peak. Steph, obviously, you know, we'll have plenty to say about Steph. It's, it was just really cool to see them still win it, obviously with that same core trio of legends. But in the case of Draymond and Clay, like they're not the same players they were. And yet they, 
they just kind of summoned enough, right? And even Clay, like Clay had an awful shooting night in game six. But as we mentioned last episode, there were still moments in this series like that, those back-to-back threes he hit in the third quarter of game five that very much helped turn, return that game back in their favor. Like it's cool to see that these guys, even though they're in a diminished state, they're aging, they, they have certain limitations they now need to make up for in the way they play. We're still able to get back here. Obviously, that's also a testament to Steph's, you know, still just unbelievable greatness and court warping ability, even at 34 years old. But then it's cool to see them do that also with the infusion of fresh blood, right? With whether it's a Jordan Poole, uh, Andrew Wiggins, obviously, who we talked about, even a guy like Kavon Looney, who I know was there the last time they made the finals, but wasn't really there like this. And to see the development he's made over the last few years to the point where he was a very important piece for them at various points in these playoffs. I just think it's a really cool story and it's a, it's it's not really the usual kind of narrative for a team that's won 4 and 8, right? Like the I think the supporting cast has changed in a way that they don't usually for a team like this. You might have some moving parts, maybe the bench guys change, but the core guys are the same and I think Wiggins and Poole, while not the the star trio, were very much part of this championship run. Wiggins as we both just said, you know, he might have been the second or third best player for them in this playoff run. So it's a cool story. I also think it's just, it's interesting when you start thinking big picture because there were a lot of people that thought the Warriors should have traded some of their assets and young guys, right? Whether it's a Kaminga, a Moody, a Wiseman, who I know was hurt, but still to kind of go all in on this year, right? Not waste what could have been the last year, the last kick at the can for the older guys. And now it's interesting because it's like, well, they didn't move any of those guys and they still won anyway. So, I mean, it justifies obviously the decision to not move any of those guys this year, but it also brings forth an interesting question going forward where it's like, okay, well, if we didn't move them yet and we already won, this almost gives us like a a ring of insurance. Now that fourth one is insurance. Now it solidified the legacy. They did it years after no KD around again. And so now we can be even more resolute in our desire to keep these young guys and keep that bridge to the future because even if we don't win one again, and I'm not questioning whether they, obviously they want to win another one, but I'm just saying, even if they weren't to win another one again, but some of these young guys are part of the next, not great, but good Warriors team, I think they can live with that you know, a lot more than if they just hadn't gotten that fourth one. Maybe I'm completely wrong and two weeks from now, the Warriors actually pull off a blockbuster move moving some of these young guys and you know, win 74 games next year. But I do think it's interesting that there was a lot of desire and like people clamoring for them to turn some of those assets into the into the trade that would make them the surefire title team this year. And they didn't do that and they still won anyway. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's still something they could and maybe should consider. Of course, like yeah. they, if they have a chance to extend this window, like it's like you're saying, you know, I don't know what Kaminga, Moody, Wiseman, what those guys are going to grow into. The window is clearly still open now. Like as long as Steph is playing at this level, they're going to have a chance. And I do think it would still be a shame to say, oh, well, we got the fourth one, you know, and kind of rest on their laurels and not push even harder when they maybe have an opportunity to do so now. Maybe the right move just isn't out there and that's fine. Or maybe they just really do believe in the guys they have internally being the bridge to another championship team in the future. Uh, but I don't think it would be right for them to say, well, we got the fourth one, so we're good. Whatever becomes of this, you know, this iteration of the team, the future of the team, we can live with that. I, I don't think that would be quite right. But I do want to circle back to 
you mentioned Clay and how he had a miserable offensive game in game six. I mean, there's no way around that. Like his shot selection was terrible. And when Boston kind of made that spirited, if ultimately doomed comeback attempt in like the late third and early fourth quarter, I felt like it was clay almost threatening to shoot the warriors out of that game. And that's not the first time that happened in the course of this playoff run. Like there was good clay and there was bad clay and living with clay's erratic shot selection has sort of become part of the experience, I suppose. But I just want to spotlight, first of all, the fact that I thought defensively he was great in that game six, despite his horrible shooting night. And that to me became a consistent theme over the course of the series, like his ability to actually defend Jalen Brown pretty well, completely changed the shape of Golden State's defense because it allowed Draymond to shift back into that helper role where like they didn't need to expend him as like the primary on Jalen, right? Like he could go back to guarding smart and just blowing stuff up all over the floor. And I thought that was huge. And and Clay held up really well in that matchup. But also just more broadly, he led the Warriors in minutes in the playoffs. And he was their second leading scorer. Like, can we take a second and just think about that? This dude is two and a half years. 32 years old, coming off two and a half years on the shelf after suffering basically the two worst lower body injuries you can suffer as a basketball player. Had 32 regular season games to essentially ramp up and get back up to speed. And he was the leading minutes getter and the second leading scorer on the team that won the championship. Like, say what you will about the ocean's restorative properties. Like, that is miraculous, man. And then they gave him the mic and he said, holy cannoli. The guy's an absolute one-of-one legend. You know, despite all the ups and downs, like, he ends the playoffs averaging 19 points a game and shooting 39% on nine three-point attempts per game. Like... I know the consistency wasn't there. I know the shot selection was often poor, but you look at the whole body of work, and I think that was a pretty extraordinary playoff run from Clay Thompson with some more iconic performances to add to his yep. ledger. You know, like the the game six to close out Memphis, the game five to close out Dallas, that second half that we've cited in game five against the Celtics, like just came up with some really big moments when the Warriors really needed it. Just hats off to Clay. You know, we've talked about all the other guys. I'm sure we can get into talking about Steph now because he's obviously the guy at the center of all this. But I just wanted to give that shout out to Clay Thompson because um, he's just he's a warrior. And like you said, one of one. And I don't I just I don't know that his playoff run has gotten enough of its due just because of some of the downs that we've seen from him. But like. I think it's worth stepping back and just considering the scope of what he's actually accomplished here coming back from what he's dealt with. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out the Scores Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. 
And don't forget to check out the Score's YouTube page for an informative yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. Synergy tweeted last night. Steph Curry shot 40% from deep this season on self-created threes out of the pick and rolls. Basically pull-up threes out of the 40%. There's just no way to stop this guy. I mentioned all that stuff, you know, a few minutes ago about how like all these years removed from the last one or even the first one and Dre and Clay obviously in, in diminished states and the supporting cast also changing around like all this and he's 34 now and the miles on that body and he's had some injuries and then he just goes absolutely ballistic again, you know, throughout the year in the playoffs, in the finals, couple of masterpieces in these finals, obviously the deserving finals MVP, finally. Uh, well, he's been the deserving one before, but finally he actually got the award. And uh, yeah, just another another jewel in the crown for a, a guy that I, I have run out of words to describe. He's changed the game, which I know is a played out narrative, but it's true. He helped change the game, literally, and he doesn't look done yet. So who knows what he can still add to this just insane resume. But whether you're a Warriors fan or not, I mean, I guess if you're a Celtics fan, you're not going to feel this way this morning. But if you're a Warriors fan or not, like, I don't understand how anyone cannot have fun watching this guy ball. And how it cannot be fun that he's back on the biggest stage. Because the playoffs and, and the final, like, they've missed him the last couple of years. You know, as much as, yeah, you want to see some fresh blood and you don't want to see the same teams there all the time. I can honestly say that, like... The finals and the play, or at least deep runs of the plays, like have missed that Steph Curry magic, and we got it back this year. I want to just spotlight so what you mentioned about the self-created threes, and I I just think it's it's funny because so much of the praise Curry gets, and deservedly so, is for the the selfless role that he kind of takes in Golden State's offense, where. He doesn't necessarily have the ball in his hands as much as a lot of superstar players of his ilk do. He's willing to run around off ball, be a decoy a lot of the time, you know, where guys are, you know, two guys are jumping out at him off of pin downs and he's not getting the ball, but that's opening up a slip for somebody else, you know, or he's getting face guarded 35 feet from the rim and he's willing to kind of take himself away from the central action to allow the rest of his team to play four on four. You know, he, is screening for guys, you know, and and being a magnet for two players just by being a screener, essentially. Like, all the stuff that he does as an off-ball player that makes the Warriors' offense different, that makes it work in the unique way that it works, he gets so much praise for that, and it's all deserved. But it it sometimes obscures the fact that he's, like, one of the best one-on-one players in the league. Like, he was literally the most efficient isolation scorer in the NBA this season. He scored 1.2 points per ISO possession, and he was at 1.13 in the playoffs, which was, I think, fifth, uh, and slightly behind Jordan Poole, actually. And I just thought, like, that really shone through in that game six where the Celtics took to just like switching a lot. That was kind of how they decided to split the difference, I suppose, where they'd been playing a lot of drop early in the series. Then we saw in that game five, they changed to like more of a blitz heavy approach where their bigs were up super high and challenging Steph's pull-ups. And, you know, that was creating a lot of four on threes for the Warriors offense. So I feel like they settled on just sort of switching and trying to flatten the Warriors out that way. And Steph destroyed them. And he did it not with like step back threes, although he got to a couple. It was 
the dribble drive game, man. Like he, he burned every defender the Celtics threw at him. He, he torched smart off the dribble, the defensive player of the year. He, he torched Tatum. He torched Jalen Brown. He torched Boston's bigs. And he was just getting into the paint almost every possession. Like every time that the Celtics switched, he was able to, to wriggle his way into the paint. And either the Celtics were like avoiding sending help and he was finishing at the rim or they were sending help and he was finding the kickouts and creating wide open threes. Like it was just as just an ISO player, like breaking the defense down off the dribble. It was one of the best games that I've seen him play. And I I just, after all the, you know, lavishing so much praise on him for the stuff that he does without the ball in his hands. I just thought it was neat to see him close out the season, you know, a, a title clinching performance in which, he completely dissected the best defense in the NBA with his dribble drive game that I feel like just doesn't actually get a whole lot of praise typically. I think to a stat from last night that encapsulates the dominance, but also the dominance, the longevity, but also just like the avalanche that it can feel like you're being buried under when you play the Warriors at their best. And specifically because they have Steph Curry and and the avalanche that comes with that. But so last night, the Warriors went on a 21-0 run, which was the longest scoring run in a finals game over the last 50 years, breaking the previous record set by the 2019 Warriors in game two of the series they lost to the Raptors. So again, I think that kind of encapsulates the ridiculousness of this Warriors run, pardon the pun, <laughs> this Warriors run, the longevity of it, all of it. And as Bob Myers, as Joe Lacob said last night and at various points, the organization is good from top to bottom, but it begins and ends with the fact that they have Steph Curry. Like all of this is possible because of this just unbelievable singular talent that he is. And that 21 nothing run, by the way, was part of a 52 to 19 run that had turned, you know, the, the, Celtics, the, started, the Celtics started that game on a 14 to two run. And by the time that Warriors run was over, it was 54 to 33 for a golden state. So I think, you know, the thing that stood out to me maybe most of all is like a big chunk of that run for Golden State came while Draymond Green, Gary Payton II, and Kevon Looney were all on the floor together. You're not supposed to be able to run three non-shooters out there at one time in 2022. And the Warriors did it because Steph can make it work. Like, they were able to run out Essentially, their three best. Def- well, yeah, I you know you could throw Wiggins into that mix as well, but like three of their four best defensive players at the same time. Despite the fact that those guys bring zero spacing on offense, and they were still able to make it work offensively to the point that the defense could play up. And man, was the defense incredible during that run. I mean, just hands in every passing lane, completely locking down the rim, absolutely stifling. And what makes that possible, what allows them to run out a lineup like that is Steph Curry's court warping gravity. Like that's, I think that's maybe the thing that stood out to me most is just like the number of different things that he allows Golden State to do, the lineups that they can run out there, knowing that he will find a way to make it work. And I think Throughout the entire series, pretty much, they were able to skew those lineup combinations toward defense 
and just sort of allow him to keep their offense afloat. Yeah, and I think that is the definition of cheat code, which is you know a term I think overused with players in the NBA when when you call guys cheat codes. But Steph is the definition of a cheat code because he allows the Warriors to win and to lean on lineups and combinations that you should not be able to lean on and win or to even win minutes with. And that is a perfect example of that lineup in game six, where you're putting out three extremely limited offensive players. you like ramping up on the defensive ceiling of it and still coming away with it, having a, what ends up being a 52 19 run because of the singular, just offensive brilliance of, of Steph Curry. If you want to keep, thinking big picture i wrote about this last week you know the zach low reports a week and a half ago about rivals grumbling about the warrior spending advantage i just want to say like look i mean obviously we don't know joe lake up and i'm not gonna vouch for him as like I, I don't know anything about him as a person but i will say as an owner he has been and the warriors have operated in ways that if you're a fan of a team any sport any league that you want an owner and a team to operate in which is that they are going to win at all costs, literally, and spend whatever they need to to win and not necessarily worry about like the profit margins of the pro sports team they own, which in the grand scheme of their net worth is literally a toy. And I think that's something I've always, strictly from a NBA and basketball perspective, admired about this Warriors ownership group, front office, whatever, because you know they had the most expensive player bill this year when you think salaries plus luxury tax i think it was 346 million that's the most expensive not just in nba history in north american pro sports history and next year depending on you know what happens with pool and peyton um and looney it could go up to 475 million dollars and they seem very ready and willing to accept that bill and as i wrote in the piece like you can talk about super teams and player empowerment and all this in the NBA. But the beauty of the NBA salary cap for all of its complexities, when you compare it to say the salary cap in the NFL or the NHL, is that it's a soft cap that actually does reward teams for building good homegrown teams because you can go over the cap to re-sign your own guys. Whereas in the NHL and the NFL, there have been great teams that have great homegrown teams that have been broken up because it's like, well, we're at the cap and these guys are all getting expensive. And I think that's the beauty of the NBA's cap. As long as teams have the stomach to actually pay that bill, right? As those guys come up for extensions, as they become more expensive, as you start blowing past the luxury tax threshold and become a repeat tax offender. If you've got the stomach to do it, you can do it. If it's GMs that are complaining about this quote unquote warrior spending advantage, then either A, take it up with your stingy owners or B, scout, draft, develop, trade, sign your way to building a team that becomes worth it to keep together at an astronomical price. And if it's the owners themselves grumbling about it, then cry me a goddamn river. Because as I've said countless times in the show, I don't care what market you're in, whatever, like there are no such thing as spending disadvantages in the NBA. If you're an NBA owner, unless you're the type of owner that despite being a multi-billionaire, wants to run your NBA team strictly as a regular business that needs to yield a profit. And so, yeah. well, if, or, if I, or if in the case of Tillman Fertitta, you somehow own a multi-billion dollar NBA team, but don't actually have any money. Yes, that's very, yeah, very fair. In that case, don't buy an NBA team. But 
you know what I'm saying? Like whether the Nuggets are willing to spend is an open question around the league right now. And the Cronkies are worth tens of billions of dollars with their hands in the Super Bowl champions, an English Premier League institution, and goddamn Walmart. The Bucks, who I mentioned in the piece. And again, I'm not not at all saying that had they re-signed P.J. Tucker, they would have repeated. But they've cited the reason they didn't fully keep that championship together, team together. They've cited tax concerns, okay, as reasons they didn't. Milwaukee is the smallest market in the Eastern Conference, fourth smallest in the league. Guess what? Their three majority owners are also worth a combined $8 billion. So the, the this notion of spending disadvantages or whatever the case, no, it's the Warriors built a team, homegrown team, that was worth keeping together at a record price. And their owner, it seems to be the only guy or one of the only people in the NBA that in in a league contested by these like magnets worth unfathomable sums of money, Joe Lacob's advantage seems to be that he's the only one actually willing to spend his billions. So whether it's GMs or owners out there grumbling about the Warriors spending advantage, it's bullshit. There is, there's no spending advantage. They've built a good team worth that price and their owner continues to be willing to pay the bill no matter what. Also, the taxpayers subsidize the non-taxpayers in the NBA. Yeah. Uh, I, I would say that that was like a total non-story, not worthy of our time. If I didn't think that it was in some way setting up for, and I know this is looking now a few years down the road, but setting up for like yet another labor showdown exactly. where the owners are going to cry poor and make a stink about these quote unquote spending advantages. Like that's, that's the only thing that I think it makes it even a story worth talking about. Look, hats off to the Warriors deserving NBA champions. That's the only story that I care about at this point in time. So I agree with everything you said. I I just don't care about billionaires grousing about other billionaires spending more of their billions on their basketball teams. Do you care though about the Dallas Mavericks acquiring Christian Wood? If I'm being completely honest, I have to go and take my daughter to daycare. So <laughs> that is definitely more important than uh, the Dallas Mavericks offseason. But we will talk Christian Wood and the Mavs on the next pod. Definitely. I also want to talk just more broadly about some like takeaways that I had and that I assume you had about this postseason as a whole and what that might have said about the direction of the league. Because I do think there was a lot of interesting stuff that I came away feeling about, you know, league-wide trends and gameplay and things like that because, um, you know, more than anything, I think it's just, like, the the defense is what stood out to me and how, you know, we had uh, the conference finalists, like, four of the top six defenses in the league. The finals were the two best defenses in the league. And I feel like that was the story of the playoffs as a whole. It was the story of the finals to me for the most part. And um, I would love to get into talking about why that was and, and what it might mean moving forward. So... Um, I, I will leave our listeners on that note and uh, hopefully leave them wanting more Pound the Rock content because while we are going to scale back down, I think, to one episode a week in the offseason, we will still have plenty to talk about. We'll still be here. And honestly, like during free agency, maybe we'll, we'll kick it back up to two depending on how frenzied it gets. But uh, I do think we're going we're gonna to ramp down a bit uh, in the summer. But um that is a wrap on the 2021-22 NBA season. It's uh, It's been great riding with you, man. Likewise, as always, man. Uh, like 100 episodes more into this now through through another season. Um, quick side note, if anyone does want my thoughts on uh, Christian Wood to the Mavs, they can read about it on the Score app. 
uh, Wolf on will have some sort of post finals feature coming up for you either Friday or sometime on the weekend. So lots to read and listen to from us. Uh, the usual stuff on the score YouTube for me as well. For now, I'll get to the fan shout out and sign us off. This week's fan shout out goes out to Liam Hood. Hope I'm pronouncing it correctly. Maybe Liam Hood, but I think Liam Hood, who reached out on Twitter to say he loves the pod and our YouTube videos at the score. Liam is out in Gatineau, Quebec, Canada. So thank you, Liam. Thank you to all of our listeners. We do have, I think, one or two more shout outs in the bank for the next couple episodes. But as usual, we want to be able to bank more of them. And we just genuinely want to uh, shout out our our listeners for allowing us to do what we do. So like I always say, whether this is your first time listening to Pound the Rock or your 249th time, reach out and let us know. Uh, hit us up on Twitter at Joey underscore double Y-O-U at Joseph Cacharo. Email us joe.wolfond at thescore.com, joseph.cacharo at thescore.com. Find me on Instagram at joe underscore 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 cash and let us know um, how long you've been listening, where you listen from, what you like about the show, maybe what you don't. And we will definitely get you a shout out on a future episode like we did Liam today. Until one of those future off-season episodes. For Joe Wolfon, I'm Joseph Cacharo. Pound the Rock.